Now, as we move to consider further Van Til's seminal nature in Scripture from 1946, Van Til, following what we've seen from Hodge and what we've already outlined from Common Grace in the Gospel, uh, says this regarding the Confessions theology of nature and covenant. He says, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, Scripture thinks of man as a covenant being. It tells us that man was originally placed on earth under the terms of the covenant of works. It informs us further that man broke the covenant of works and that God was pleased to carry through his aims with the covenant of works by means of the covenant of grace. Thus, Scripture may be said to be the written expression of the provisions of God's covenantal relation with man. Van Til is emphasizing in this statement, that the pre-fall covenantal revelation of God continues in its post-fall form in Scripture. The pre-fall special revelation in the covenant of works continues in the post-fall time, the time of the covenant of grace, in Scripture. And so as you're thinking about the title of his book, and I've said this, I believe, two times, one more for a threefold emphasis— The natural revelation that is always accompanied by special revelation before the fall in the covenant of works gives way to natural revelation always to be interpreted in light of the scripture after the fall. If special revelation is necessary before the fall, how much more is it necessary in its inscripturated form after the fall? And Van Til speaks of special revelation in its two forms, pre- and post-fall, positive verbal revelation, covenant of works, scripture after the fall. He speaks of this twofold um, special revelation under necessity, authority, sufficiency, and perspicuity. The authority of special revelation and the necessity of special revelation are involved in one another quite organically. He says quite flatly, the necessity of Scripture lies in the fact that man has broken the covenant of works. He therefore needs the grace of God. There is no speech or manifestation of grace in nature. Boy, that sets him over against Rahner, doesn't it? But here's the point. Even before the fall, Adam needed, necessarily, he needed the necessity of special revelation to direct him with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, secondly, the authority of Scripture, and by implication, of course, the authority of pre-fall special revelation is involved in the nature of the revelation that it gives. God is not merely an expert. God speaks with an absolute authority. He does so before the fall in the covenant of works. He does so after the fall, directing sinners to salvation in Christ as he speaks with absolute self-authenticating authority of grace. Van Til, following the Reformed tradition, affirmed that God speaks with absolute authority. And to emphasize the the um, sufficiency of Scripture, 
He says to the necessity and authority of Scripture, there must be added the sufficiency or finality of Scripture. And this is where I think he waxes somewhat poetic. He says, when the sun of grace has arisen on the horizon of the sinner, the light of nature shines only by reflected light. Even when there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, they are to be so ordered according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. The light of Scripture is that superior light which lightens every other light. It is also the final light. God's covenant of grace is his final covenant with man in its terms must be once and for all finally re- finally recorded against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and the world. And to, to necessity, authority, and sufficiency, Ventil adds perspicuity. He says that God's being is wholly clear to himself, and therefore his revelation is wholly clear to those to whom he gives it, cannot be exhaustively comprehended, is not univocally comprehended by man the way God knows himself, but it is perspicuous and clear with reference to its purpose of giving necessary, authoritative, and sufficient disclosure of the purposes of God that have reached their climax in Jesus Christ in whom the church rests for salvation. And so Van Til says, with this general view of Scripture in mind, and with the view of the covenant of works in mind that we have outlined, God's revelation in nature and God's revelation in Scripture form one grand scheme of God's revelation of himself to man. The two forms of revelation must therefore be seen as presupposing and supplementing one one another. They are aspects of one general philosophy of history. If it's the post-fall world, general and special revelation in Scripture always are to be held together in an in a distinct, inseparable, simultaneous unity. And before the fall, God's revelation in nature, God's revelation in covenant, were distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous features of God's self-disclosure to Adam. Now, Van Til masterfully states and develops this when in, in, he speaks of the philosophy of history, He says, we are told that man could never have any fruition of God through the revelation that came by nature as operating by itself. This is in Christian Apologetics, page 29. Hear that again. We are told that man could never have any fruition of God through the revelation that came to him by nature operating by itself. There was super-added to God's revelation in nature, another revelation, a supernaturally communicated positive revelation. 
Now, hard stop before I give you the next quote that some people find difficult to understand. Please recognize that Van Til, page 29, Christian Apologetics, amplifying what he has taught in nature and scripture, is explicit that special revelation is super added to natural revelation, distinct from natural revelation. There are, for Van Til, two distinct modes of revelation, natural and supernatural, general and special. He's absolutely emphatic about that, and it cannot, we cannot miss that. Now he makes the statement that some have misunderstood. Natural revelation, we are virtually told, was from the outset incorporated into the idea of a covenantal relationship of God with man. Pause before I expound more. Is Van Til saying natural revelation is the covenant of works? No. He's already distinguished natural revelation that comes in nature and special revelation super added to nature, a beyond nature. But his point is this that from the outset, because they're distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous, this general revelation was, and this is the verb, incorporated into the covenantal purpose of God in special revelation. And so this line here that I'm drawing is the line of incorporation, incorporation. General revelation is incorporated into the covenantal purpose of God made known by special revelation. This is Westminster Confession 7.1 being restated and fine-tuned. Van Til's affirming the distinction of the two modes of revelation, but he's saying this, that no sooner was Adam created from the dust of the earth then all that God revealed to him in nature was incorporated into the purpose of the supernaturally communicated positive revelation super added to nature. By nature, Adam could have no fruition of God. By covenantal condescension, by an additional supernaturally communicated positive revelation, Adam could have fruition of God. And so the natural is incorporated into the supernatural. The general is incorporated into the special. What God revealed in natural revelation is covenantal in the sense that it is incorporated into the purpose of God in his voluntary condescension of covenant. And so in that sense, Van Til speaks of nature as covenantal. And he infers we are virtually told that the natural revelation was incorporated into the idea of a covenantal relationship of God to man. That language is critical to appreciate. So let me restate it to make certain misunderstanding does not abound here. Try to forestall all misunderstanding. Natural revelation, according to Van Til himself, natural revelation simpliciter is not the covenant of works. 
nor is it inherently covenantal in the sense that it is the covenant itself. However, natural revelation is instantaneously incorporated into the covenantal purpose of God as it provides the necessary, authoritative, sufficient, and perspicuous natural religious fellowship that covenant brings to fruition and consummation. Natural revelation then serves the covenantal purpose of God as it is instantly incorporated in to that special revealed covenant, that act of voluntary condescension. Now, this is what Van Til says. In Nature and Scripture, in Christian apologetics, in Common Grace in the Gospel, and elsewhere, this is the Reformed philosophy of history, owing its debt to the Westminster Confession of Faith 7.1, to the work of Gerhardus Voss in his Biblical Theology and elsewhere. And this is the philosophy of history that Van Til moves on in his essay to apply to Greek, Thomistic, Kantian, and Bardian views. And this is something we have to appreciate. Now, it would be a lecture in itself to detail all of his criticisms of Aristotle and Plato and Thomas Aquinas and Immanuel Kant and Karl Barth and post-Barthian phenomenological developments. And that has a place. That place is not this course. What we need to appreciate When Van Til applies this philosophy of nature and scripture, this philosophy of history, nature and covenant, to these views, is that you can state this deeper Protestant conception, this this confessional philosophy of history, you can state it in such a way that it shows the underlying unity of Greek, medieval, and modern alternatives. That is the brilliance of Van Til. How does that look? Let let me give you that summary. First, all forms of Greek, Thomistic, Kantian, and Bardian alternatives deny concreated natural knowledge of God given in the work of special creation resulting in natural religious fellowship with God. They all deny it. Aristotle and Plato have no place for such a doctrine. It doesn't even exist. It doesn't come into purview. None of them affirm the doctrine of special creation, concreated righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Thomas, as we have seen, has no place for original righteousness and holiness and has no place for concreated natural knowledge. Immanuel Kant, as is well known, needs very little argument, but I'll I'll give some, denied that there can be any direct knowledge of God in natural phenomena. For Kant, as the mind and the a priori, synthetic a priori categories of the understanding constitute the categories of time and space, the mind can know sensible objects, but not God. Theoretical reason cannot know God at all 
through sensible objects. It's, if anything, Kant is the radicalizing of the Thomistic uh, 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 denial of direct knowledge. And Bart, as we've already seen in the previous lecture, denied both the natural capacity to know God as well as concreated knowledge of God. In fact, denied all knowledge of God in the sphere or dimension of history. Bart located knowledge of God and revelation of God in a supratemporal event of Jesus Christ in a dimension totally distinct from calendar time. And so, lo and behold, when you apply the first strand of the philosophy of history to the Greek, Thomistic, Kantian, and Bartian alternatives, all of them, with all of their differences, and please hear this, there are differences between the form-matter scheme of Plato or Aristotle, the nature-grace scheme of Thomas, the nature-freedom scheme of Kant, and Bart's dialectical theology. There is a world of differences among them. And we're not trying to, to pretend that those differences um, uh, don't exist. In fact, we could teach a course talking about the fundamental differences among these various figures, the Greeks, Thomas, Kant, and Barth. But here is the genius of Van Til. He shows how they're all united in their opposition to the first structural strand of the history, uh, the philosophy of history, in concreated natural knowledge given in nature by God, consisting in natural religious fellowship. But secondly, not only do, do all deny concreated natural knowledge and natural religious fellowship with God in image-bearing Adam, all deny that special covenantal revelation was given from the outset to Adam, and it is abnormal for a creature to reason without it. None of them affirm that proposition. The Greeks clearly deny such a view. They all have an autonomous conception of reason. There is nothing intrinsically obligating the Greeks on their own terms to walk in the light of God's special revelation. Aristotle, Plato, Thales, Anaximander, all of them in various forms are appealing to reason as the ultimate arbitrator of what is true, what is knowable, and what is good. Aquinas made clear that the inner light of natural reason is not met from the outset with special positive revelation. It can't be, because the mind starts with what? Sensible objects and only comes to attain the knowledge of God through an inferential process of reasoning. According to Aquinas, the inner light has its own self-authenticating function as it comes to gain natural knowledge of God before the fall, but is not from the outset confronted by supernatural, positive, covenantal revelation. There's no communion bond in nature for covenant to address for Aquinas. The logic of covenant isn't present in his doctrine of man and nature and the image of God. Kant says that if God revealed himself in history, it would be fundamentally unintelligible to natural reason. Knowledge of God must be sought, according to Kant, by intuition using an entirely different form of reasoning altogether that he called practical reason. 
Kant invented an alternative access to God because reason doesn't know God. Theoretical reason, operating on sensible objects, reflecting on self, does not know God through that means. And he certainly never affirmed the necessity of special revelation informing reason from the outset, either in the Garden of Eden or after. And Barth, as we've heard, relegates special revelation and reconciliation and redemption to an event in a time dimension totally inaccessible by reason in time. So to sum up this section and to help you appreciate just the profound depth of insight in what I consider to be the most neglected essay of Van Til's, the most neglected line of reasoning that turns up his robust confessional reformed identity as uh, one who teaches and affirms a reformed doctrine of natural revelation and a reformed doctrine of special revelation following Voss and setting it over against the Greeks, the medievals, the uh, modernists. To sum this up, Van Til sets forth a distinctive covenantal philosophy of history that integrates natural and supernatural revelation, but he also shows how its theology unites Greek, medieval, and modern alternatives and substitutes. It is among his most ingenious contributions and universally neglected by his recent critics who persist in misunderstanding him and failing to address the profound architectonic significance of this proposal. To use language we might be familiar with, he sets the deeper Protestant conception over against the deeper Greek conception, the deeper Catholic conception, and the deeper modernist conception, the dialectical proposals of Kant and Barth. And this shows the profundity not only of his positive, constructive formulation, but the distinctiveness of that presentation against other views vying for acceptance. Now I'm going to conclude this section with a rather lengthy quote from the end of Van Til's Nature and Scripture, the last two paragraphs. The words are as relevant, if not more, today than when they were first spoken and written. Listen. Certain lines have now been drawn in the modern chaos. The modern chaos is not so chaotic as it may at first sight appear. There are at bottom only two positions. There's the position of the confession. This position consists of a natural theology that serves as the proper foundation for the full theology of grace that is found in the Reformed confessions alone. It consists of a natural theology whose fundamental meaning and significance is found in the very fact of its being the field of exercise for the historical differentiation of which the Reformed theology of grace is but the narrative. There's, on the other hand, the positions of Plato, Aristotle, Thomas, Aquinas, and Kant. It consists of a natural theology that must, according to the force of its interpretive principle, reduce the historic process of differentiation, as told in the Confessions, to dialectical movements of a reason that is sufficient to itself. 
Before I finish with the last uh, portion of that quote, pause there and let me just remind you, he's not saying Plato, Aristotle, Thomas, and Kant agree with one another in their positive views. He's saying they agree and unite in what they don't affirm, namely this distinctively reformed integration of natural and special revelation enshrined in the confessions taught by Voss and pressed antithetically and militantly by Ventil. Then he goes on to say this, between these two, there is and can be no peace. And the natural theology of the confession, though unpopular both now within and beyond the church, cannot but be victorious at last. For all its vaunted defense of reason, the natural theology of Aristotle and his modern followers destroys reason. The autonomous man cannot forever flee back and forth between the arid mountains of timeless logic and the shoreless ocean of pure potentiality. He must at last be brought to bay. He cannot forever be permitted to speak of nothing that reveals itself exhaustively into nothing and yet pretend to convey meaning in his speech. The autonomous man has denied the existence of a rationality higher than itself and has legislated for all reality. In doing so, it has itself legislated for all reality. Yet it allows for pure potentiality that is beyond all rational power. It has undertaken to do so, or rather claims already to have done, what is also inherently impossible of accomplishment. On the other hand, the natural theology of the confession with its rejection of autonomous reason, has restored reason to its rightful place and validated its rightful claims. In recognizing the sovereign God of grace, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth, as its chief and ultimate principle of interpretation, the natural theology of the confession has saved rationality itself. Without the self-contained God of the confession, there would be no order in nature and no employment of reason. This is the summary of the reformed doctrine of revelation in general and special, natural and supernatural categories being interwoven in the economy of God's self-revelation and coming to Adam as he was endowed with original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, worshiping God in his natural obedience and knowing God through his voluntary condescension could have blessed God himself as his blessedness and reward as that natural religious fellowship denied by the Greeks, denied by traditional Roman Catholicism, denied by Kant, denied by Barth, as that natural religious fellowship comes to its full fruition of God through covenant. This is the deeper Protestant conception of the doctrine of revelation that Van Til inherited from his favorite professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, Gerhardus Voss.